without the economic aspect attached to the policies that we're trying to champion, we know that the kind of revolution that needs to take place economically, it can't happen. And so that's, I think, something that I've really learned more than anything, which is we have to talk shop, we have to talk economics. And I think that's what's so valuable about the MMT community in that respect. Welcome to Activist MMT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today, guest host Ramona Masachi talks with Neil Walia, who's running in Colorado's first congressional district. He's accompanied by his economic advisor, Andres Bernal. This is our second conversation with Neil, the first six months ago near the start of his campaign. Today, we dive into Neil's policy platform. The first policy we discuss is housing the unhoused and how this can only be successful with an accurate accounting of the homeless population. Not so coincidentally, housing and the homeless was Neil's focus when he was a congressional staffer for Senator John Hickenlooper. This policy is coupled with several others as it must be, such as for mitigating the looming ecological crisis and reducing industrial pollution. Another policy goal, standing up to the outsized influence of money in politics, is exemplified by two terrible quirks in Colorado state law. The first, an arbitrary limit on government spending to remain at 1990s levels. Today, in 2022, when there is a much larger population, the law is needlessly suffocating. The second is a ban on rent caps, making it much more difficult for Coloradans to transition to home ownership. A criticism of rent caps is that it may result in not enough housing units for Colorado residents. The idea that the number of available units can only be increased by allowing property owners to increase costs on their occupants without limit is highly suspect. Neil's primary is coming up on June 28th and his campaign is on a roll. He's enjoyed big endorsements from people and organizations at all levels and has appeared more than once on prominent independent media such as the Young Turks. His first in-person debate with his incumbent opponent is this Tuesday evening, May 24th. You can support Neil's candidacy by visiting neilwaliaforcongress.com and neilforcd1 on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. You'll also find a link to donate to Neil's campaign in the show notes. And now, on to our conversation with candidate for Colorado's first congressional district, Neil Walia. Enjoy. 
Andres. How you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm in Texas at the moment, so just you're in uh, Texas. What are you doing yes. there? Uh, yeah, I came to actually. So um, tomorrow, early voting starts for my district's runoff, and um, we have a pretty close runoff and an actual progressive who came out of nowhere and I worked with some people to find the candidate and stuff. And so I put on a little, a little get out the vote fundraiser at my, at my house here with my family and friends. Wow. What, what candidate? Her name is Michelle Vallejo. Yeah. I saw, I saw the picture you were having um, dinner with her and your family. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was a fun little, little event. So just kind of helping get out the vote a little bit and, the good thing is uh, I get to vote here myself this week. So, nice. so that's where you're from. Yeah, this is where I grew up. And um, I voted before in New York City as well. But at, at this point, my vote counts a lot more down here in Texas. Mm, that's great. Um, okay, uh, Ramona, um, let's do it. Thanks so much for everybody being here. Go for it. Hi, I'm Ramona Masachi. Um this is the Activist MMT podcast with my co-host, Jeff Epstein. Say hello, Jeff. Hello. We're here interviewing Neil Walia and Andreas Bernals, who are going to tell us a little bit about this new policy framework that they have put together. Hello, Neil. Hello, Andres. Hi. Hey, what's going on, Ramona and Jeff? Good to be back again. Um, so I was looking over at your the, the policy framework that you've put together. You put together housing policy, small business commitment, and a green economy. And I feel like all of these policies that, that you're working on all meld together and kind of work together. And without one, the other one doesn't hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was shocked about, the, I, I think, initially, um, I was shocked about a lot of things, but what I was shocked about initially was the, the point in time count, the PIT mm-hmm. count, which counts how many homeless people are in a given area and how they have been counting these homeless people. And I was wondering how many homeless people are counted in Denver, Colorado with the PIT and how many actual homeless people are estimated because from what I understand, the count isn't uh, substantial because they, they do it in the winter and it's early morning and usually people are like finding places inside to yeah. stay warm at that yeah, time. Definitely. And I'll, you know, obviously let Andre speak to this a little bit as well, but, you know, when we're, uh, just for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Neil Walia. I'm a candidate running in the first congressional district in Denver, Colorado. And a number of years ago, uh, I worked for the state of Colorado for the former governor and now U.S. Senator of Colorado. Uh, his name is John Hickenlooper uh, on a team that focused on ending homelessness in our state. And the point in time survey has been the most utilized metric in terms of gauging the number of unhoused individuals who live in the city of Denver, but also across our state. And as you alluded to, Ramona, there are a lot of structural flaws uh, in terms of how this survey is conducted, because the reality is that it is essentially measuring 
the number of unhoused individuals in one day of a 365-day period. And it's kind of built upon the capacity of the individuals who are able to count the unhoused uh, in that 24-hour period. And so as you can imagine, there are a large number of individuals who are uncounted in that survey. And as we alluded to in the framework, um, and I'm you know losing the number off the top of my head, but what we know is that there are you know far more unhoused individuals in the city of Denver, in the state of Colorado, than what the point in time survey reflects. And what that challenges, I think, our state government, our local government, and also our federal government is that, you know, it impacts the resources uh, that are set to address the issue. And if we know that the point in time survey is not accurate, you know, we need to rely uh, on more substantial measurements to gauge the number of unhoused people who are in our city and then use that to, you know, leverage more dollars from our government to support those communities. But um, that's kind of why I think Andres was so adamant and did such a well, you know, he did such a good job on kind of highlighting the need for us to look at other measurements, other reports, uh, because we know the issue is much graver than we think it is. And when you're coming up into one of the policy um, recommendations was having housing for people where they actually have ownership of the housing. How do we accomplish that where people actually own the home that they live in and actually are able to afford to own the home that they live in? Sure. Um, I mean, I guess to speak to the first question a little bit, we've made an effort to connect with advocates and people that work in the homelessness, you know, crisis management and, and housing area of um, nonprofit and advocacy work. And um, it was very illuminating to us to hear from these people and hear the critiques that they had over the kind of official uh, government PIT count. So uh, to just give an example, because of the limits, as Neil described, to getting that PIT count, 2020 had an estimate of like 1,500 more or less individuals that were unsheltered. But um, when you look at what some of these other organizations are, are, are saying, it looks th- that number looks more like almost 13,000. Then one of the things that was brought up by the Office of Homelessness Initiatives in, in, in Colorado was that they were in the state as a whole, there were like 53,000 individuals covered by Colorado's Medicaid system uh, in 2019. So, you know, basically even before the pandemic that were without stable housing. And that included about 23,000 students that were um, experiencing homelessness or unstable housing of some sort. So, you know, the numbers are a lot bigger than, then some of these official counts tell us, and even the PIT count for last year, they couldn't even conduct it correctly because of, um, you know, the pandemic, you know, it's, it's it just personally also, I, I think it's kind of odd to do this kind of evaluation and measurement by sending people out to just kind of like find homeless people and point them out and, and then just kind of mark numbers up. Um, yeah. 
that seems does, does seem a little dehumanizing to me and uh, kind of reinforce that separation. I think that there are much, a lot of other ways that we could work with already groups doing really important stuff uh, to get a better sense of, of the problem. And uh, Ramona, could you repeat the second question again, please? I have a follow-up question to what you just said. Yeah. Are these yeah. 23,000 students high school students, college students, or a combination of? Um, it's pretty much a combination of, of students, yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's crazy because yeah. I, I, I went to high school in Queens and a lot of my friends when I went to high school were homeless. And so I, I, I see how these kids have like grow up, how they live and how desperate that situation is. Um, and so my, the other part of my, my question is how are we going to make sure that these people actually have housing where they're able to afford their housing and also have potential ownership of that housing. Yeah. I think the one point we really wanted to highlight was the need first to elevate the housing crisis, the homeless crisis to a national priority. And I think intentionality matters on these subjects. And for us, the reason we're trying to kind of create what Andres has created, crafted as the homes guarantee is to do that, right? Is to create uh, that starting point within the halls of Congress that says we have to elevate this issue to a very, very high level of urgency for us to start engaging on this. And then I think from there, there are a lot of things that we can do as a federal government that'll make a big difference, not only in my district, which is Denver, but nationwide, because I think we have to first start by saying that, you know, this isn't a Denver issue from Seattle to LA to Philly to DC to Chicago uh, and everywhere in between. There are unhoused people in every single city and every single state in the United States of America. And so I think the way we've always thought about the way to transform our country is through uh, deep federal investments. And so let me do a little bit of education on kind of Colorado and like what has created a very predatory real estate market, both residentially and commercially. So Colorado is gridlocked by two statewide constitutional provisions that have contributed to the homeless crisis and the housing crisis here. First, Colorado has something that's called the Taxpayer Bill of Rights, otherwise known as TABOR. Uh, it has been deemed one of the most, if not the most restrictive tax frameworks in the country nationwide. And what TABOR does is it caps state spending at a level that was decided upon in the 90s. And what it says is anything that kind of goes over this threshold in terms of tax generation has to be redistributed back into the public in the form of a check. Now, the problem with this is that Colorado's population has exploded over the course of not just the last 10 years, but the last 20 years. Our quadruple, it's like quadrupled, quintupled. And of course, I think what you would ideally want is for your state budget to evolve with that population growth. You would want more state investments, more public dollars to be available to invest into roads, schools, housing, all of our public needs, but we're not able to do that. The other thing that makes things very precarious in our city is that 
we are banned from implementing rent control. Like we are not allowed to cap rent in the state of Colorado. And in the process, we have birthed a very privatized, a very predatory real estate market that gets to dictate what affordable housing costs and looks like. And of course, when we're talking about the most vulnerable populations among us, that will always mean that it will be out of reach for people to take a real step forward into home ownership. And so for us, what we think is the federal government can be the vehicle to really transform this crisis uh, into something that sees every single person in this country have a home. And that has to start with very large investments, uh, not only into permanent support of housing for the currently unhoused and the chronically unhoused, but affordable housing for people who might be caught in the middle, people who are renters, people who are temporarily homeless, people who want to be homeowners but are stuck in a very harsh American economy that prevents them from taking that step forward. So our model is the first step of ending homelessness is to put people into homes, and that starts with the investments. And then, of course, from there, we need to create an economy that you know allows working class and middle class families to thrive and not be bankrupted on a regular basis. That's also why we are very big advocates for Medicare for All. We want healthcare to be a human right. We want mental health services to be coupled under that umbrella so that some of our unhoused neighbors, especially those who might have experienced deep-rooted trauma, addiction, you know, some of the worst experiences that you can go through as a human being have not only a roof over their head, but access to health insurance that allows them to heal themselves and take a real step forward in that progression. And I think the final step of this equation as you said, Ramona, all of our policies are connected by design. We need a Green New Deal now more than ever, not only as a step away from oil and gas, not only as a means to correct the very real climate catastrophe that's taking place right before our eyes, but to build a new economy from the bottom up that sees every single person in this country uh, have a thriving wage with benefits. And I think that's what the unique ability of the federal government can be. We can say, look, in our green economy, we know that we need millions and millions of jobs in order to build the world we all want to live in. And the federal government can say, we will not only provide you a minimum wage, but a thriving wage. And I think we could always talk about the need you know, for that to look like something that's around $20 an hour, but also provide benefits to people who are looking to work. Also provide training to occupy those jobs and maybe even target communities that have historically not been able to take a step forward because we know many of our unhoused neighbors, for example, may have a minor felony for whatever reason on their background or something even like marijuana possession that has prevented them from being hired. We can say as a federal government that even if you have those things on your background, that's not going to be a barrier to entry in the workplace. And so I think it really starts with the long-term vision, the framework, and the policies we've created together to get us there. Um, Andres, am I missing anything? I think the home ownership part might have been something I haven't spoken to yet. I guess what I would add to that is, well, I, I, like we've, we're seeing with so many other policies, there's a lot that can be done, obviously, at local and state levels. But um, a common theme is the federal government 
you know, using this whole state's first approach and in, in many ways uh, abstaining from responsibility to sort of provide the support and the legal infrastructure for many of the most and more desirable state and local policies to actually work. When you think about something like homelessness, as Neil was pointing out, and housing affordability more generally, it's obviously a phenomenon that crosses state boundaries entirely and can't be solved by any single uh, locality uh, or state. The other thing I guess I would add, uh, and you know, it's just kind of um, what Neil has already spoken to, the holistic approach that understands that affording, uh, you know, housing affordability more generally that spans income level from those that are on the, the verge of losing their housing to a prof- young professional that is, you know, faced with these exorbitant rents. They're not identical experiences, but they're definitely very connected to one another. And so a kind of multifaceted approach that sees the importance of stabilizing rents at a national level through policy that includes both certain controls and regulations on the ability to basically price gouge uh, on rents because of the monopoly power over you know, industries and markets by some of the most powerful real estate and uh, speculators in housing is a very important step. And one of the criticisms to rent control uh, has been to say that it's going to cause housing or apartment shortages. And that's obviously why we always speak to the importance of a, a housing development that is not premised on speculation and profit, but led on social and public goals. So in addition to trying to stabilize rents, put controls, and something like a a tenant's bill of rights, we obviously also support a plan that's going to invest in more social and public housing, but not the kind of public housing we're used to in the United States, which has been a tool to uh, exacerbate segregation and is notoriously underinvested in, but instead very quality, dignified, and good and desirable mixed income social housing models that we already see around the world in places that have a much higher quality of life than the United States, such as in Austria with kind of the city of Vienna in particular is what I'm thinking of. And so those two things are very important. And of course, we can't forget about you know healthcare, like Neil spoke to, the role of the job guarantee and the role of a higher uh, living wage and, and some of these kind of automatic stabilizers that uh, policy can do and support so that when there's shocks to our system, such as a pandemic, people don't experience a, a kind of social pain in, in the ways we've kind of normalized, which all is ultimately reflected in housing insecurity, rents, and homelessness. Yeah. And just something I'll, I'd love to add on top of that, which is the thing I appreciated about working on this with Andres was an intentionality behind listening to people, not only in community, but in local government, state government, and national to kind of build this from the bottom up. Because I think what we see a lot of the time is a very large disconnect 
between the federal government and state and local government on these issues. And so we didn't want to kind of do the same thing where, you know, I think people get elected and they come in with great ideas, but then it's almost like you're kind of mandating a number of individuals who have been working on this to kind of start something new or kind of throw a wrench in the way that things have been done. We really wanted to harmonize all levels of society in terms of how we came up with these solutions. And what you'll see in our paper is not just the long-term game plan, right? Because let's acknowledge that a lot of the things that we've come up with are very much a movement. They're very much things that still have to be implemented through policy, through legislation, through executive orders. But in the meantime, there are some short-term things that we can do as well. And before I say what they are, I'll acknowledge that these aren't exactly the comprehensive structural transformations that we need in the long term. But when you listen to people on the ground here in Colorado, they'll tell you a couple things around the fact that as we move towards these larger ambition goals, there's a need to do uh, an expansion of what's called the low income housing tax credit. Essentially, what you can do is provide financial relief to developers to build more affordable housing because what we hear time and again is that it costs more money to build housing for the you know more vulnerable sides of our population than it does not to. So what we can do is create some immediate respite, some immediate financial incentive for more housing to be constructed. But what we've also heard is on the issue of healthcare. There have been a number of programs through Medicaid and a number of pools of money and dollars that have been generated that are meant to serve our unhoused neighbors, that are meant to be put into the hands of community, but they've been caught in this regulatory limbo. And I think what we also want to do is lean in to the administration of money as well and speak to the necessity to cut out some of this tape that has seen money being created but hasn't actually materialized into financial relief for who we're trying to serve in this equation, which is real human beings. And so uh, I just want to kind of commend the approach that we took to this because it's really resonated here in Denver and in our state because of the fact that we were intentional about not just doing this amongst ourselves, but working hand in hand with people right here on the ground in Colorado. Yeah, I commend you for that as well. Um, So I was also looking at Denver, Colorado, and how um, you have a waste disposal site in Arapahoe, which is the largest stationary source of fine particle pollution in the state. And the release of airborne lead, almost 50 tons of hydrogen cyanide released every year from the refinery facility, just a few miles from North Denver. Yep. And, and then in addition to that, more than 14,000 megawatts of energy from three coal-fired generators that mm-hmm. emit more than 9 million tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere on an annual basis. And so when you look at that and you look at how toxic that is to, to the environment and how important it is for us to transition, and then as we're transitioning, we also have this issue where we are also reliant on a lot of heavy metals that are very toxic to extract. And how do we mend this where we're at a place where our energy is being generated by not destroying the earth even further? Yeah, I mean, 
important question. What I want to do is also continue framing the urgency here uh, in our district. You've pointed out some very important elements that exist here uh, that our neighbors in the first congressional district are going through. But, you know, to add on to that, we experienced the worst fire we've ever experienced as a state in the winter of last year. This is a fire that saw thousands of homes and small businesses burned to the ground, but also create uh, an air quality situation that is also extremely harmful to our public. And adding into kind of what you just said, you know, we registered in my district in two neighborhoods. One of them is called Globeville. One of them is called Elyria Swansea. Again, neighborhoods in close proximity to not only these plants, but also to highway construction and to a number of other uh, very toxic kind of sources that have seen the worst zip codes created nationwide. We registered two of the worst zip codes nationwide last year in those neighborhoods. And so to your point, Ramona, there is a desperate need for us to take a real step forward. But it's very challenging in Colorado because I think, if I'm not mistaken, we are one of 10 oil and gas producing states nationwide. And so the industry is alive and well here. It is well-funded and government, not just Republicans, but Democrats from local to state to federal are all caking off of big oil and you know big gas. And that is a real problem here because we cannot really become the state I think we want to become in terms of environmental reform with these shackles. And so I think for me, the first real step is saying no to fossil fuel money, saying no to corporate money and corporations that are happy to see this country literally burned to the ground in the name of profit. And so, you know, we are a Green New Deal pledge uh, signee. That is, you know, a commitment to not taking the money from, you know, the companies that are harming our planet. And I think from there, there is a responsibility to not only go to Washington, D.C., sign on to the Green New Deal and the other legislation that is to be created under that umbrella, but to also become vocal advocates and hold our Democrats accountable in our state who are taking money from the very same people we're fighting against. And, you know, I'll point out a couple things that make it challenging here. We have what's called like a state uh, public utilities commission that has been crafted at the at the state level by our governor and you know companies like Excel Energy companies that are you know oil and gas heavy like they have a real seat at the table there and they get to dictate what regulations we implement and which legis- and what we don't we have two sitting senators who are democrats who in the last year said that we will never ban fracking in our state and these are two democrats who have said that they care about the environment but when you follow the paper trail there's a very clear reason for why they cannot make the full commitment to going going totally green. It's because money continues to pervade politics in our state and nationwide, and we have to take a real step away from that. Andres, do you got any other ideas? Like, what else can we do? I guess you know to kind of transform and change the tide. I I think we have the scientists, we have the people, we have you know, what it takes. It's really just a matter of 
getting people elected and getting organized and convincing the public at large that something different is possible and is necessary and just uh, investing in the things that are going to make that happen. It's really that simple. We have a approach to energy that has these externalities, if you want to call them that, in terms of producing really damaging and harmful pollution effects and and uh, damage to ecosystems. I think that there are just important social and ethical considerations that have to go into the process of determining how to have our relationship with nature. And we can do that. There are many experts that can give us the information on where those limits are and what certain Uh, processes with whether it's metals or other minerals might have and might produce. So that's, that's just what we have to cultivate and foster. And budgets are ultimately kind of a social and and, uh, ethical representations of that process and commitment. Yes, absolutely. And I'll just echo that. I think we have the ability to become that voice in our district. We have a D plus 57 district. It is one of the most progressive districts on this side of the United States of America and a district that has seen a real migration of young individuals from around the country who have moved here because they love the environment. They love being in a state that has 300 plus days of sunshine, that is aesthetically gorgeous when you go outside, but they're also seeing the pollution really take away I think the charm of what's made Colorado such a special place to live in. And so I think we have real momentum. And we also know that these younger uh, voters, our younger students, you know, they're ready to lead and ready to build movements, not based on the politics of the past, not based on pragmatism, but to Andres's point, let's move in a direction based on our ideals, our morals, our ethics, the things that I think we have to recommit to as a public because I think we've allowed the politics and the theater of DC to really frame how we think of what's possible and what's not in our country. And I just want to echo what Andre said, like building an economy and a green planet that we all want to be a part of, it is entirely possible, but we have to start by believing it's possible and leading Uh, with our idealism instead of our politics. So I think that was a very important point. Something that really excited me also was um, the the, the suggestion of community-owned utilities, true nonprofit public service companies, where it's, it's up to the people of the area to decide what they want their energy to look like and that nobody is really you know, gorging off of the profits off of that, that people are receiving what they need at the cost of service. And so could you go further into how we can put that together and make that something that's a little bit more relevant that people can feel like they can reach for? Uh, Actually, let me interject before you answer that, if I may. And that, that actually kind of implies that with you know, climate change, the ecological crisis that we're, we're running towards requires us to get more local. And that actually seems like a very significant step towards making critical institutions 
more local energy, food, education, entertainment, and so on. Yeah. So I, the first thing I would say is that I think we need to kind of get beyond this local versus macro or micro versus macro perspective. Uh, that is something I think that is a false dualism. It's a big part of the, the kind of social research that I, that I do in kind of unpacking the implications of different policies. So with that said, right, for there to be local governance, whether that be in environmental management of a utility or whether that be a cooperatively owned public or municipal housing project, uh, that all needs the kind of legal institutional support from the layers above it. And if they, if you don't have that, it's far easier to break those apart because then many of the social institutional logics that we oppose will have that kind of institutional support, much of which is in the form of investment and money and credit that's used for destructive reasons, I think, in all of our opinions. So in order to have, you know, quality municipal governance of things, we need to uh, have a plan for, uh, you know, how to build these things out at all the different layers of our society. With that said, there is a role for different approaches across these different levels of jurisdiction. And, Another thing that I kind of resist is the idea of like, okay, now because of the environmental crisis, we need to just kind of go small and and rely on localism in a generalizable sense. I think that's a huge mistake because there's no way we're going to solve a a planetary climate crisis only locally, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, this is kind of something that can be common in the discourse at large. So... There are already many uh, efforts, and there were during the New Deal era, to have this kind of um, municipal or local or cooperatively owned and managed um, forms of utilities or ownership of, of uh, all kinds of different things. The, the point beyond, behind all of this is that it's just a legal design. That's really it, right? And so kind of administering, declaring, naming, like all these different approaches that we want is, you know, part of the political should be grown in our political process and in our policy discussions. And it's part of, I think, embracing all a spectrum of different ways of approaching many of these issues. So for example, I mentioned Vienna in relationship to housing. And this is also, I think, applicable to something like environmental issues too. It, it's not that in, in Vienna that has, you know, some of the best social housing in the world that they only do municipal or public ownership, or they only do another, you know, kind of cooperative model. No, they do a little bit of everything. And even in the private, uh, even the private for-profit real estate development and property development, they have a strong piece of that that is called, um, that is based on limited profit associations. So basically like, yeah, you can, you can compete for bids. You can compete in kind of in that traditional market sense or whatnot, but there are just certain rules that that sector can't have uh, endless amounts of profits. And so like 
that's a kind of shaping of that market itself. So there are different ways to go about doing this. There are already many places that are more efficient and effective through a kind of municipal governance of, uh, of a certain utility or a certain public good. I think it's important because this can get people more involved. It can kind of be part- designed in a participatory kind of way. Uh, I think it expands and it teaches a lot more democracy. And all of this uh, is very important and obviously is complementary to the state level and federal level things that we want to do as well. So part of having that conversation about you know what may, might work best under different circumstances and through different kinds of models and approaches and getting in you know different kinds of knowledge expertise and and, and uh, different kinds of information from what people have experienced is I, I think a way to really remaking and significantly increasing the quality of our pu- public and policy discussions and debate in the country. And if we can do that, I mean, that's a big step towards replacing the very just, you know, useless and stale kinds of policy debates that dominate our media and the airwaves right now. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the IPCC report and how that report has affected your policy structure? Uh, okay, so you know the IPCC has released three working groups and reports from them, and this one is trying to take the approach of saying, like, look, we've already emphasized how serious this is, and you know how bad things can get if we don't do anything. What's a little different about it is it says we can actually do a lot, and we just have to start now, and we have to really commit. And there's a huge opportunity, and in a way, it kind of reflects some of the Green New Deal framework language in saying that there's a huge economic opportunity to create jobs and invest in in, in sort of uh, economic development shaped through the lens of decarbonizing and addressing some of these ecological breakdowns. So, I mean, I guess this third report is very much in line to the work that this campaign is committed to and that, you know, I personally have been committed to, which is holding together both the seriousness and the urgency and the danger of what we're doing so, so far in the status quo, but not giving into this kind of uh, ecological uh, pessimism or nihilism, which also has kind of gotten popular of uh, thinking like there's nothing we can do. It's all lost. And, uh, you know, embracing, I think, like some eco-fascist politics that are getting a little trendy and are, are, are kind of scary out there, but instead just continuing to insist that there there can actually be a very fundamental and important breakthrough in our whole, you know, approach to politics and our society at large if we understand that this is really a huge opportunity to to shift that, that kind of paradigm. So, yeah, I think that that's that's how I would uh, understand that. And Neil, could you tell us a little bit about like how the campaign's doing and where it's going since we last talked about you and what has developed? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we talked 
I mean, right after we got started, right? And so just for people who are listening for the first time, I'm taking on a 25-year sitting incumbent. Her name is Congresswoman Diana DeGette, uh, someone who I think embodies, you know, one of the bigger challenges we've seen happen in national politics, which is people who are being funded uh, largely by corporate PACs who are disconnected from the struggles and the communities that they're serving, people who spend more time in D.C. and people who I think value, you know, the D.C. committee over the communities that they're serving. And so we set out to challenge not just her as an individual, but I think what we've tried to bring is a spirit to challenge, you know, the structure of politics at large and giving something that is truly people-powered and people-focused to our communities. And uh, I announced my campaign in July of last year in front of an audience of almost 200 people. And what was special about that is, as I've said, I'm a first-time candidate. I've never run for office before. And yet, for me, almost 200 people from our community showed up to listen to what I have to say for a key, few key reasons. First and foremost, I think for the first time in a long time, people are seeing someone who shares their struggles, someone who comes from their story, and someone who you know, really is trying to do this for the right reasons, which is to empower people. And I think it's also kind of combined with a cultural frustration with establishment politics, people who are career politicians, people who have been in Washington, D.C. for a long time, but have done very little uh, to prevent, you know, our district's housing crisis and homeless crisis from exploding, very little to prevent the cost of health care from reaching levels higher than any other generation has experienced before us. And that also parallels with aspects like education, the cost of housing, etc., And we've really seen something unfold on this campaign trail time and again, which is it's really not about me as an individual at this moment in time. Like I know I'm kind of the face of the campaign, but like I said, I think think people are really trying to champion the spirit of what we are trying to bring to the table. And, you know, we were very fortunate in the first half of our campaign to do the thing that you know, most political experts and people in the scene wanted to see, which was, can you raise the money? And, you know, in our first half of the campaign, we hit that six-figure number on small dollar contributions. And that really opened up quite a lot of doors uh, in terms of conversation, meetings, and, you know, just kind of doing the things necessary to elevate the campaign in the right way. And we really saw the fruits of that labor start to pay off at the beginning of this year. You know, like when you walk into a situation like I am, you got to get very prepared to hear people tell you that you have zero shot of doing this. You'll never be able to win this or, you know, get this endorsement. And yet we started receiving a lot of the national endorsements that we really wanted. You know, Marianne Williamson, former presidential candidate, endorsed the campaign the Progressive Democrats of America, both statewide and nationally, the Blue America Pact, right? Like these organizations started to jump in because I think they also believe in the vision and the country we're trying to create. But more important to me was also the local and state support. Uh, You know, we've had a number of state and local officials from local and state government all over our state endorse our campaign. And that created a very powerful moment in terms of how 
people were treating us, how people saw the campaign, and people who wanted to get involved. Last month, I'm proud to say that we officially made the ballot. In Colorado, there are a couple different ways you can make the ballot to be on the primary. One option is to go through what's called the caucus, which is essentially a, you know, a meeting of delegates selected within the Democratic Party. They vote on you uh, as a small group. If you get a certain percentage of their votes, you know, your name is on the ballot. And as much as I appreciate that process and, you know, recognize like that, you know, it's a valid way to get on the ballot and there's no real problems with it. I think I've always seen caucus as a vehicle meant to serve those who are already deeply connected to electoral politics. And I didn't want to run a campaign that served the interest of people who already had a seat at the table. I wanted to do something that was very different. And so I pursued the petition route. And in order to qualify through petition, you need to get 1,500 signatures from registered Democrats in the district that you're running in, in order to make it onto the ballot. And what we did is with the help of you know almost 40 volunteers, we targeted neighborhoods that many people in the political establishment told us not to go into. Uh, of course, a lot of these neighborhoods were working class neighborhoods, immigrant neighborhoods, BIPOC neighborhoods, people you know who have felt disenfranchised and left out of the political conversation. People who people in the establishment time and again say, oh, they don't vote. They don't participate. So why would you go there instead of going to the wealthier, wider parts of the district? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to put my fate into the hands of the communities I want to serve. And we collected almost 3,000 signatures after talking to about 35,000 people to get those signatures and about 1,800 of those officially, you know, were verified by the Secretary of State. And so we made the ballot. And now we are one on one with our opponent going into the June 28th primary without a Republican that can win this election because Denver is a D plus 57 district. There isn't a viable Republican registered in this race, meaning that when we win the primary, we make history in the Mahai City by electing not only the first person of color to ever represent our communities in the halls of Congress here, but also the only federal representative in an entire state who has never accepted a penny from a corporate PAC. And, you know, since qualifying for the ballot, you know, I think the real rodeo uh, started to begin. Uh, A number of press opportunities started to take place. You know, I was fortunate enough to be on the Young Turks a couple times People really started buying into the campaign, and we've orchestrated a very field-heavy campaign since making it onto the ballot. You know, we have people hitting the doors every single day, people phone banking for us, uh, and real momentum is generating behind us to pull off a very significant upset in the primary this year. And I'm proud to say that our momentum has forced Uh, our current incumbent to come down from the ivory towers in Washington, D.C. to participate in a one-on-one forum debate with me next Tuesday on the 24th of this month. And so I am very proud of where we are as a campaign. I'm excited uh, to debate my opponent and give our communities 
you know, a real side-by-side representation of what we have to offer and why we think we're the right step forward from our 25-year sitting incumbent. So thank you for asking, but the campaign is going much better than I think I could have ever imagined. Where can we watch this debate? Oof, man, you know what's really tough is that they haven't exactly, and for the record, the people who are hosting this debate are Democrats uh, across a number of House districts within our within our city and our state, uh, as well as a, a union that is partnered with them locally to put this together. I have not exactly seen a live stream or televised feature just yet, but it is something that we're certainly pushing for. And of course, once we get uh, official confirmation that it is going to be live stream, I'll make sure to let you all know. Uh, I would love for you all to tune in and anyone else who's interested, you know, to see what we have to offer. So even if they don't offer a live stream, would you be able to get somebody to oh, just... Yeah, we we'll, <laughs> our intention is to record the entire thing one way or okay. the other. So we will Good. have our people in their phones ready uh, to do the work. Of course, I just hope they, 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 they make the intention themselves to do that as well. But we'll have content one way or the other. Because you're you're gonna you're gonna sweep the floor with her, and I want to watch that. I've uh, <laughs> I've been praying for this moment the entire campaign, and you know it's it's important not just I think for me, right? I I truly think our communities deserve this. Like it's it's not about what's politically advantageous to one or the other. You know, this is a democracy, and at minimum, the people of our district are owed a real dialogue. Uh, between the people who are trying to represent them. And and so uh, I'm hoping that this forum that takes place is not just the only time that this happens. We've been told by a number of local organizations on the ground that they're actually trying to have another debate take place in early June. And so we will certainly be letting you all know if we happen to get a second one teed up before we walk into the primary. Oh, that's like the best thing that could have ever happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like every every everybody prays like that they can actually have a debate with the person because everything seems so obscure unless you're going one-on-one head-to-head with the issues. Absolutely. And you know, like our entire campaign has been vision focused. It's been issue focused. We have run a positive campaign like None of what we've done has been about her as an individual, right? We are trying to challenge the systems. We're trying to champion transformation from the bottom up. And, you know, I think by working with people like Andres, by learning, you know, from the best and brightest minds within the MMT community uh, and the progressive kind of arena that has really built a positive policy movement nationwide, you know, we know in the bottom of our hearts that what we're advocating for is the real step forward and a real opportunity to, you know, change the lives of so many people in this country. And so we're excited to debate based on that vision and based on that framework. And I think, as you've kind of alluded to, I think once people hear what we have to say, there will be a real, a real support system that starts to kind of mobilize behind us from all over the district. So I appreciate the affirmations. Thank you. <laughs> Jeff, would you like to ask your, your fabulous questions? I would like to. Thank you. Um, yeah. And it's exciting that you're being acknowledged, which in and of itself yeah. is, you know, the other, the, the establishment candidates or the Republican or whoever, 
you know, a big strategy of them is to ignore as best as they can. And the fact that that's gotten beyond that stage is, is obviously somewhat of a testament. So that's good. Um, yes, my question, um, this is for both of you. It has been six months since we first spoke, Neil. Uh, and this is a very different interview. We're really into the details. And, and I, think that's, I think that's great. Um, and that's actually part, probably a reflection of part of what I'm looking for in my question. You have, you know, you're clearly enthusiastic about being accurate as far as the economy is concerned. And I think you have a clear understanding of why an accurate understanding is so important. And, you know, a lot of your platform that we've discussed tonight partially reflects that. So now that you have learned it more deeply since we originally spoke, I think that's fair to say, Mm. uh, and, and especially under the guidance of Andres and people like him. I would like to know, beyond what we've already spoken about, how has that understanding changed your platform and changed your your day-to-day interactions with, you know, as part of your campaign? And and to ask kind of the same question to Andres, which is simply, you know, you're you're have you've you've advised several candidates at this point. And so given that experience, I'm kind of interested in, in hearing your perspective of this same kind of growth into, you know, real economics and how that, how that changes the, the campaign and, and the candidate. Um, let me go ahead and try to start with that. And I think that there are a couple of things that are coming to mind immediately. First and foremost is recognizing that unless economic transformation is coupled with the idealism that we're talking about. So whether that's through the lens of healthcare, housing, uh, education, there has to be a tangible economic benefit or relief that takes place, not just in the broader population, but specifically without the economic aspect attached to the policies that we're trying to champion. We know that the kind of revolution that needs to take place economically, it can't happen. And so that's, I think, something that I've really learned more than anything, which is we have to talk shop, we have to talk economics. And I think that's what's so valuable about the MMT community in that respect. It really, I think, educates our candidates of how to have that dialogue. And those that can target working class, middle class, BIPOC, immigrant communities, the most vulnerable amongst us. Like I think now more than ever, the American population is ready to talk solutions. They are ready to talk about ideas. They are tired with political theater. They are tired with the culture war. And don't get me wrong, that is something that we could definitely have to continue to battle and lean into. But I think what we need to do in order to combat you know, that toxicity is come up with ideas and educate the population in the process on what those ideas are. And I think this is where I've kind of come into my evolution a little bit and learning about the best way to go about teaching and educating and communicating. And I think this point is something that I hope other candidates who are listening to this kind of take with them, which is, you know, initially when you're meeting people for the first time, I'll say that I think the worst thing you can do is lead with policy. It's lead with the, you know, the discussion on healthcare and the economics and the Green New Deal I think more than anything, the average voter, the average American is trying to understand who you are first and foremost. 
And so I think the most important piece is how do you communicate your values, your story, what you're trying to do and why? And I think once people find that trust in who you are, I think that creates the real opportunity then for people to listen to what you have to say about the solutions. And so for me, like my transformation has been not only learning how to talk in a way that allows, I think, you know, what I would typically describe is very technical policy forward types of language. How do you make that something that's a bit more digestible? How do you speak that in a language that, you know, everyday people can kind of, you know, take away and actually understand? Uh, And the first way, you know, to do that is one, share who you are, two, come in with the policy, but three, be a teacher in those moments educate on the why, and more importantly, educate how this is going to have a real impact in your day-to-day lives, your day-to-day expenses, your health, and all of those things. And so I'll say that, you know, that has kind of been how I've evolved over the course of the campaign trail. And of course, it's been with the help of partnering with Andres and other people who have, I think, really leaned into building me into the champion that I, I want to be. Like, you know, this isn't just like a me thing. Like I've I've been privileged in this to have support from, you know, a lot of good people. So I think that's my answer to the question uh, that you asked. Great. Um, Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. I think as somebody that's involved in both research and um, the development of, of ideas and also is involved actively supporting and working with campaigns, with candidates, with political movements and organizations. It's been a very important and uh, kind of transformational experience for me and that has pushed me to think beyond a lot of conventional, you know, maybe black and white thinking or I I think approaches that are just not going to help us get to where where we're at. One of the things I, I... really agree with what Neil has just said is, you know, the importance of building trust with a constituency. If you're running for Congress, right, with your district and whatnot, as uh, somebody that wants to be involved in public service, not because their sole and biggest motivator is to, you know, acquire wealth and power, but rather because they are also very committed to, um, you know, serving their community and uh, uh, contributing uh, meaningful development to this society and the world at large. And I don't see that as disconnected from these policy conversations uh, whatsoever, or even in describing how an economy functions and what it is. You know, I think Jeff and, and Ramona, you, you all might know that, like, I in in the MMT world. My closest colleagues and I, we definitely resist the tendency to make MMT an argument about reality versus illusion, because I think that that, that argument doesn't go anywhere except really just uh, stay in, in, in a small group of people who already agree on things and have the misguided uh, expectation that just by saying that we are true and, and the others are false – that that will change everything. Um, if you really get down to unpacking what an economy is, what policy is in that accurate sense, what that reveals is 
are, are questions, more questions about resources, about investments, about values, about priorities, about inequalities, about exclusions, and about also at the end of the day, how to govern, whether it's a central bank, whether it's a Congress, whether it's a, a, a city council, and uh, decisions about employment, decisions about how to uh, create a, a universal health care system, uh, decisions about administering a job guarantee program. All of these policy questions are not about some accurate description of reality. They're about questions concerning how we want to coexist and under what values we want to coexist and how to actually make that, make that happen. So I, I think there are different settings for different kind of ways to speak about uh, policy and, you know, these, these different questions we're, we're talking about. There are the spaces where you absolutely want to make this as uh, accessible as possible to people that, that haven't had you know, their whole lives dedicated to studying these things and don't have the time and have like more pressing concerns. And in, in that sense, you know, I think it's, it's just essential to lead with values, particularly the things that I work on with my colleagues are about emphasizing inclusion, rejecting zero sum narratives, uh, emphasizing the quality of, of economic categories, such as growth, not as something that's natural, but rather something that is determined by how we define development and what that means and what that entails. Um, questions about what do we mean by employment and all the qualitative dimensions of that, rejecting notions of natural economic forces, such as a natural interest rate or a natural rate of unemployment or um, law-like functionalities like a relationship between deficits and inflation and pointing out that there are all of these questions you know, about People, people understand you don't have to be an economic expert to understand that supply chains are hurt by uh, infrastructure problems, by a weak workforce, uh, because they live this. And uh, that is a very sophisticated um, MMT-informed approach to inflation. People understand that corporations with too much power are going to price gouge. People understand that like, if the workforce is overworked, weak, tired, underpaid, this is going to cause delays, bottlenecks, and distortions in uh, supply chains when we're in the middle of a pandemic. People are going to understand that if the ports are all screwed up and infrastructure is bad and other countries don't have vaccines uh, and are getting sick, that is going to affect shortages in all these questions as well. So there's, there's room for that, right? And then, of course, if we're also working um, at the level of the technicalities of the system that we have as is, and we need to win the debates against certain kinds of experts. You know, I'm thinking of like uh, you know, Jason Furman and Larry Summers and Paul Krugman, who carry so much weight amongst a certain kind of uh, uh, a certain sector of the of the population that basically reads that these these people and and they legitimize. They have the cultural role of legitimizing what's correct and what's accurate just because of who they are and what they represent, right? And so uh, defeating those arguments requires a, a bit of a different kind of approach, right? Um, and it's, it's very much holistically connected with the kind of candidates you run, the kind of campaigns you run, and what you tell people uh, is possible, and how you challenge certain definitions and where limits are and what limits are 
so yeah, that uh, kind of really trying to internalize and and uh, hold together these these different settings and this far more capacious understanding of what economic systems actually are has been very uh, important to me. And then, you know, the ongoing work of trying to connect with candidates and campaigns around these same values and then learning from, obviously, from from great candidates and, and campaigns as well, right? And kind of trying to be, in a reciprocal way, co um, you know, inspiring and instructive is is where I think um, the future lies. Yeah, and you know, one thing I just want to add on that, and the reason I think Andres and I, I think, vibe so well, it was you know, obviously around the the desire to come up with meaningful policy and ideas, and to his point, like, how do we frame the culture and the narrative around? what we should be doing and what we can do. And I just want to make an important point here, which is, you know, before I think our campaign came into fruition, there was a real lack of dialogue, I think, in the way we've created around, like, what is the Green New Deal, right? Explaining what uh, healthcare as a human right actually looks like. What is a homes guarantee? How do we transform housing and all of these things? And I think the reason that we wanted to be so policy forward was that, look, like, and I'll keep it real, is, you know, as much as I believe in the heart of hearts that I'm going to win on June 28th, like, there's no way to guarantee that. And what will sustain no matter what is the work that we've done to kind of plant the seeds for policy transformation across our state. Because... I think what people now have had access to is a real platform uh, that is not proprietary to me, right? Like we've created this because we want this to kind of evolve absent of just like an individual, right? Like these transformations have to take place, whether it's Neil Wally in Congress, whether it's AOC, like the ideas are really what's going to take us to the next level. And the more we can continue this work, the more we can educate and the more we can frame the narrative and find people to become those idea leaders, those cultural figures that keep pushing the pedal on what transformation means. You know, I do think that one way or the other, like our legacy has kind of been planted in the Colorado through our campaign already. And, you know, whether I am the congressman, whether I'm a candidate, whether I'm a community member after June 28th, like, that work doesn't stop one way or the other. Like this isn't about one person. This isn't about one campaign. Like this is really about a movement to, to change things in this country because, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of time before we start entering into a chapter, you know, of irreparable damage. And I really want us to positively motivate people to believe that a better world is possible um, and I'm like very grateful that we've been invested in by some of the best and brightest minds to help kind of create that momentum and hopefully make, you know, a real step forward from this campaign one way or the other. Excellent. Thank you both. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so <laughs> much, Neil Walia and Andres Bernals for joining us. Um, I am so grateful 
for both of you and all of the work that you have put into this and all the thought that you have put into this. The fact that you two even came together is amazing. And I am very, very much looking forward to this debate on Tuesday the 24th and looking forward to your primary on June 28th. And this is, it's just this is great. And this is the steps that we need to make people understand that better is possible. Absolutely. So before we say goodbye, why don't we, why don't we uh, give you an opportunity, Neil and Andres to what can in this final stretch of the campaign, what can you, you know, what can people do to support you? Yeah, I'll go ahead and start and I'll just, you know, echo that the entire, the entire purpose of this campaign, of course, was you know not only to kind of show people that there are better ideas and a better a better world exists, but we also wanted to orchestrate a campaign, like I said, that you know was field heavy and that allowed people for the first time you know in their life to have a congressional candidate knock on their door to ask them about what they're going through to get to understand, you know, the issues that they care about most. And that's, I think, been the best contrast to what our opponent has offered thus far. And so if you are able to to donate to this campaign, and again, small dollar donations have been what has made this campaign successful and will be continuing that model until the end, you know, even if it's like 10, 20, 50 bucks, it's going to help us continue hitting these doors, making these calls, printing literature, and giving people a real reason to believe that they should be hitting the booth on June 28th and voting for their futures. So first step, if you're able to visit the website, that's N-E-A-L-W-A-L-I-A, NeilWalia for Congress.com. Uh, please consider making a small donation. If you live in the state of Colorado, We need as many boots on the ground as we can get. And so there is a volunteer portal on the website. And if you are interested in helping us knock doors and make these calls, please join, you know, this amazing team uh, of human beings who has helped us create, I think, the best challenge we've seen to our sitting incumbent thus far. And finally, you know, continue the social media support. Ramona, I just want to say thank you for always being a huge champion, promoting our content on Twitter, and really getting the word out. For those of you who aren't following us on social media, you can go to the website to see all of our handles. But essentially, whether it's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and surprisingly for us, TikTok has really taken off in a really good way. Neil for CD1. Uh, is the handle you can look up to to start following us. And so those are the ways I would encourage you all to get involved. Excellent. Thank you so much, Neil Walia. I hope that the people of Colorado understand what a valuable candidate you are and what an amazing addition to Congress you will be. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you all. Uh, Thanks very much to all of you, including Ramona. Um, This has been great. Thank you so much for having us. See you all. Bye. Bye, Jeff.
Music for this show is by Rectech. You can find Rectech on SoundCloud and Spotify at W-R-E-C-K underscore T-E-C-H. To record Activist MMT, I use the iOS phone app Tape-A-Call Plus for recording phone calls and Zencaster for internet-based recordings. My post-production workflow starts by editing on the iOS app AnyTune Pro Plus, then transferring those timestamps to my Windows desktop. At that point, I crudely process the audio in Audacity and then implement the edits and do all of the final processing in the Reaper digital audio workstation. Activist MMT is hosted by Libsyn and the video teasers are created with the online headliner app. Today, guest host Ramona Masachi talks with Neil Walia, who's running in Colorado's first congressional district. He's accompanied by his economic advisor, Andres Bernal. This is our second conversation with Neil, the first six months ago near the start of his campaign. Today, we dive into Neil's policy platform. The first policy we discuss is housing the unhoused and how this can only be successful with an accurate accounting of the homeless population. Not so coincidentally, housing and the homeless was Neil's focus when he was a congressional staffer for Senator John Hickenlooper. This policy is coupled with several others as it must be, such as for mitigating the looming ecological crisis and reducing industrial pollution. Another policy goal, standing up to the outsized influence of money in politics, is exemplified by two terrible quirks in Colorado state law. The first, an arbitrary limit on government spending to remain at 1990s levels. Today, in 2022, when there is a much larger population, the law is needlessly suffocating. The second is a ban on rent caps, making it much more difficult for Coloradans to transition to home ownership. A criticism of rent caps is that it may result in not enough housing units for Colorado residents. 
The idea that the number of available units can only be increased by allowing property owners to increase costs on their occupants without limit is highly suspect. Neil's primary is coming up on June 28th, and his campaign is on a roll. He's enjoyed big endorsements from people and organizations at all levels, and has appeared more than once on prominent independent media such as the Young Turks. His first in-person debate with his incumbent opponent is this Tuesday evening, May 24th. You can support Neil's candidacy by visiting neilwaliaforcongress.com and Neil for CD1 on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. You'll also find a link to donate to Neil's campaign in the show notes. And now, on to our conversation with candidate for Colorado's 1st Congressional District, Neil Walia. Enjoy. 